Uh, Wanna wanna encourage you to be praying about our Christmas Eve services. Uh, it is one of those times where uh, you can invite friends and family. And I've been handing out uh, these Christmas invite cards. We've got a few left. And if you'd like them, I'll be at the front door after the service, and you can come and grab one for me. And just want to let you know, uh, the offering we're taking on Christmas Eve for Duhook, uh, we're actually not going to pass offering bags because we want to just be sensitive to the guests that we do have and don't want them to feel pressured. We haven't been advertising in the community that we're having an offering, and we t traditionally don't. And so we're just going to have a box. It's going to be in the foyer. It's going to be clearly marked, and we're going to encourage you to to come and be prepared to give. If you, if you wanted to give that kind of gift, you can also designate something online or uh, uh, towards the, uh, the hook, and you just have to remember how to spell it. Anything that starts with D-U, R-W-I-N, <laughs> should, should get there. Should get there. Or it'll go to me, but whatever. It's, uh, you know, just, some of you didn't find that funny at all. Just not funny at all. We're really pleased to have Simon uh, speaking this morning. We're going to have him up in just a moment. Why don't we just pause and just, uh, again, in this, just sense the, the, the rushness of this season. And uh, I've been sensing this morning Jesus inviting us to pause and to be still and to open our, our, ourselves up to what he wants to do in our lives today. I believe he's got a good word through Simon, but uh, let's be preparing to receive our king. Lord, in these moments in this service, some of us, this will be the stillest we are <laughs> for the next day or two, and uh, we want to pause and remember what this season is, is about. Jesus, your coming changes everything, and uh, we want to be prepared to receive you as our king, to, to, Lord, have you be Lord of our lives, the king of our church and our families, and our city. Speak to each one of us, Lord, in a language we can understand today, that we might hear your voice and follow your lead. Father, uh, we'll thank you for Simon today. Thank you for the gift he is to this body. What a blessing. And as he brings uh, the word, uh, may our hearts be encouraged and his also. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Come on up, son. Thanks, Darwin. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all. Uh, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. It's the first page in the New Testament, so it should be fairly easy to find. And we'll be reading from there in just a few moments. How are your Christmas preparations coming along? Yeah, there's, a, there's a few people that are positive, a few people maybe, maybe less so. Um, you got everything sorted, you know, meals, presents. Presents are always the difficult thing for me. I always get to a couple of days before, and uh, back in the days without Amazon Prime, then uh, you'd be in a bit of a pickle, but uh, thank goodness for that. <laughs> Well, I think this year we're doing a bit better than we, we usually do. We've got most of the important things uh, sorted out. But now I've said that, then uh, 
There's probably a few things I've forgotten. I'll be running around on Christmas Eve as usual. Well, the, the week before, or even the, the few days before Christmas, tend to be quite busy and, and packed in. We have a lot of things going on. But when it comes down to it, most of us, uh, at most, prepare for Christmas for maybe a month. You know, we might have a few people who are particularly eager and start listening to Christmas songs kind of midway through November. And uh, some of you may get frustrated at that as well. Some of you may sympathize with those people. But um, at most, we prepare for Christmas for about uh, maybe a month or a few weeks. When we come to the passage we're looking at this morning, uh, it's easy to skip over. It's a list of uh, a number of names, uh, old, hard-to-pronounce names, and it seems somewhat boring, uh, somewhat irrelevant. And yet, when we start to unpack what's actually there, Uh, What we come across is a simple idea at the heart of this reading, which is that ever since the beginning, God has been preparing for the coming of Jesus. Ever since the very beginning. We may have been preparing for this Christmas season for a few weeks, a month, but God, from the beginning, was preparing for the first Christmas. Everything written in this passage helps us unpack that idea and understand who this Jesus really is. And the way that we find this out is by looking at Jesus' family tree, of all things. You know, in recent years, then, um, looking up your family tree and ancestry has become quite popular and a lot easier than it has been in the past. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at Jesus' family tree, his ancestry. So go ahead, and if you're able to, please stand with me in recognition that this is the Word of God we're about to read. And I'll read Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17 for us. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Aminadab. And Aminadab, the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, 
and Eliu, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Matan, and Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Dear Lord, um, this is a very repetitive passage filled with names, confusing, um, unfamiliar names, and yet we trust this is your word. We trust that you have something to say for us through this, something important to say to us through this, and we ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would open our hearts to be able to understand this. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Look with me at verse 1 again. This is the very first verse of the New Testament, on the very first page. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Immediately, we're introduced to this person, Jesus, and he's given three different titles in this very short sentence. He's Jesus, the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And each of these titles are related to one another. So first, he's called the Christ or Messiah. Uh, Those words both mean the same thing. One is just Greek and, and one is Hebrew. And they mean anointed one. Kings and priests in the past would be anointed with oil as a sign of being set apart for God. Set apart for a special purpose. Queen Elizabeth, um, during her coronation in the 1950s, was anointed with oil as a symbol of being set apart, set apart for a special purpose. But during this point in history, the Jewish people had been for a long time expecting this Messiah, this Christ, to be sent by God a unique individual sent by God to save them. And all throughout the Old Testament, we see this golden thread running through the storyline of God working in history, hinting at what is going to happen. One day, God was going to send someone to save His people. And we see this in the names that are listed here. Just to pick out a few of them, We see Abraham, uh, whom God promised that through his offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And we see God promises the same thing to Abraham's son, Isaac. And also, in the story of Isaac, we see that he was going to be sacrificed, and then a lamb uh, was given as a substitute in his place. Uh, The promise through whom uh, the offspring would, be, would bless the whole earth, is also given to Isaac's son, Jacob. And then we see in the story of Judah at the end of Genesis that Jacob prophesies over his son and says that the scepter, a symbol of kingly rule, 
will not depart from Him. There's going to be an eternal kingdom. We trace these names throughout the Old Testament, and we see Boaz, Boaz in the book of Ruth, the redeemer of a foreign widow. And then we see David, the the greatest of all of the kings, called a man after God's own heart. And then we see Josiah, the the reforming king. Uh, After some periods of, of evil and wickedness, Josiah comes and he reforms the people, and he turns them away from their sin and back to God. And then we find the names Rubbable as well, right at the very end of the Old Testament, after the, the exile to Babylon, after God's people have been sent away and, and brought back, God said that He had chosen Zerubbabel as, and as a, a signet ring. These names stretch all the way from Genesis at the beginning of Scripture to the end of the Old Testament and down through to Joseph, Jesus' adopted father. The point of this first page of the New Testament, this, this first section of Matthew's gospel, is that there is a golden thread that you've been seeing run all throughout the Old Testament, and finally, it's reached its destination. Uh, finally, we're seeing the fulfillment of all of these promises that are interlinked and connected the one that you've been waiting for, the Christ, the Messiah, the one that God has been preparing for since the very beginning, He is now here. The time has come. The time is being fulfilled. The substitute who will be a sacrifice, not just for one person, not just for Isaac, but for all people. The eternal King of Judah, whose rule and reign and kingdom will have no end, a greater redeemer than Boaz, not just redeeming one person, but redeeming humanity. The greatest of all the kings, even greater than the great King David. The one who will help turn people back to God. One of the reasons why the the Marvel superhero films are so popular is because of they've done this great job of interconnecting all of them. They're not just standalone, independent films. Sometimes they connect very explicitly and clearly, and other times the references are more subtle. One of the reasons why the final film that they did of this series was so well done was how they packed it full of references from the old films and and connected them all together. And you see a similar thing in Scripture. You see these these teasers, these Easter eggs, all throughout the Old Testament of of hinting at something that's coming. This is the way that God has worked in in history and has revealed it in Scripture. That's why the Bible has been called the most hyperlinked text uh, of all, because Each page is just filled with explicit references, maybe more subtle references, and maybe sometimes just faint echoes connecting it all together. The thing that's remarkable about the Bible compared to other literature is the fact that it's been written by 40 more uh, authors 
at different periods of history, and yet it links in so well together in ways that human imagination could never have connected. There is a, a remarkable unity to Scripture. You can spend your life, and people have done and continue to do so, um, finding out all of these connections. Jesus is the culmination, the fulfillment of this grand story that God has been working in human history. All of these jigsaw puzzle pieces are fitting together, and finally we're getting to the full picture. I love the Christmas hymn, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our, sin, from our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in Thee. Jesus was long expected. God had been at work planning this from the very beginning. So Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. But He's also called the Son of David in this first verse. The greatest of all the kings. This passage ends with a bit of a, a strange section, actually. Verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. There's three sets of 14 generations that is specifically stated. The thing that's strange about that is when you compare the list of these names to the Old Testament um, from which these names were taken, you see actually there are some names that are missing. This isn't an exact replica of the list of names there. There are some names that are intentionally missing, meaning that the number 14 is clearly important. It's been specifically chosen. And the most probable reason for this has to do with the very name David. Clearly, David is one of the most important people in this passage. His name uh, occurs five times, more than any other name throughout this passage. And also, Jesus is called the son of David before he's even called the son of Abraham, even though Abraham came first. And then, David in verse 6 is called the king even though a bunch of kings are then listed after that. You've got to be considered a pretty great king if you're called the king in a list of kings. And one of the interesting things about the Hebrew language is which the Israelites spoke and which the Old Testament was written in is each letter of the alphabet uh, would be or would represent a number as well. So you'd have the first letter of the alphabet represent number one, second, two, and so on and so forth. And when you add up the value of the letters in the name David, you get the number 14. Generally, whenever someone mentions about there being a a secret code in the Bible or something like that, you want to steer very clear of that. That's not how the Bible works. There is not hidden knowledge in that. That's actually more of a, a, a Gnostic idea, an early heresy. It's almost entirely nonsense. Interesting and complex, but nonsense. But this practice of assigning numbers uh, to words was actually very common in Jewish circles. 
You see a similar thing going on with the book of Revelation, number 666. It's the same thing going on. So even in the way that this genealogy has been structured, it's pointing to David. That's the point of this. That's why Matthew makes such a big deal of David. That's why he specifically chooses this number 14 and this way of representing it, is he's pointing towards David. But then why three sets? The number three was kind of used as a superlative. You know, we say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That means God is the holiest of all. So saying David, David, David is not just saying this is another David that's coming along. This is the one who is greater than David. The greatest David is now here. David was a great king. This is the king of all kings. Central to the belief of the coming Messiah was the idea that he would be the son of David. He would be a physical descendant of King David, but his rule and reign would be longer and more far-reaching. It would be eternal, and there would be no limits to his kingdom. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promises King David through the prophet Nathan, and he prophesies and promises about his descendants, and he says, I will raise up your offspring after you. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. The eternal king of a never-ending kingdom is now here. That's why Matthew talks so much about the kingdom of God. Jesus' kingdom. King needs a kingdom. The third and last title Jesus is given in the first verse is the son of Abraham, the ancestor of the Jewish people whom God made his covenant, his promise with. God has been preparing the coming of Jesus since the very beginning. Abraham first comes onto the scene in Genesis chapter 11, near the very start of Scripture, and God promises him that although at that point he is childless and very old, Paul, I think it's Paul that makes this comment saying about he was as good as dead, This is a bit insulting, but real, true. And God promises that through his offspring, all the nations of the world will be blessed. This list of names seems boring and irrelevant and unnecessary to us first. But it shows us that God is sovereign. He's in control. He has been at work all throughout history which also encourages us that he is still at work. And he's remained in control, even in light of, despite of human sinfulness and the free choices that we have made, um, and many of them very bad. That doesn't thwart his plan. Still in control. He is sovereign. In the second century AD, when the, the early church was growing, there was a man, came, man named uh, Marcion, and he was very concerned with the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament, a struggle that many people have today as, as well. 
And unfortunately, he ended up entirely rejecting the Old Testament. He thought that the Old Testament and the New Testament teachings were incompatible. He even ended up believing that there was an evil God in the Old Testament and a good God in the New Testament. The problem for him was that the New Testament is full of references to the Old Testament. So he had to toss out most of it. In fact, I think the only gospel that he kept was Luke's gospel. But even in Luke's gospel, there's a genealogy of Jesus. And so Marcion had to do away with that as well. Because he realized how greatly this list of names connects the person of Jesus and his work to God's word to us in the Old Testament. The result of this was that Marcion ended up with a completely distorted view of who God was and a completely distorted view of who Jesus was. An Old Testament scholar called uh, Alec Matir once said, without the Old Testament, we cannot know Jesus properly. Sometimes it's difficult to read the Old Testament. It really is. But when we become familiar with it, the New Testament becomes so much richer. We can't truly understand Jesus without the context of everything that God has been doing beforehand. Now, here's the thing. What we've spoken about up until this point was fairly expected. There was an expectation that there would be a Messiah, an anointed one, from God that was to be sent, who would come from the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, the line of David and Zerubbabel, that God's promises would be fulfilled. And it was normal to trace the lineage of someone through the paternal line, through the the fathers. But that's when we see this first plot twist in this passage. It's not just the fathers who are mentioned in this genealogy. There's also four mothers who are mentioned as well. Now, if if a genealogy, a Jewish genealogy, was going to mention four mothers, you already would know as a Jew who they would mention. They would mention Sarah and Rebekah. Sarah was the wife of Abraham. Rebekah was the wife of Isaac. And Rachel and Leah, the wives of, of Jacob. These are considered the four matriarchs of the Jewish people. But they aren't mentioned. Instead, the four people that we see mentioned are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and the wife of Uriah, who's called Bathsheba. So these aren't the most important mothers in the history of Israel. These aren't the people that you would expect by any means to be on this list. And then it gets even stranger when you look at who these women actually are. Tamar tricked her father-in-law, Judah, into sleeping with her by pretending to be a prostitute. Rahab actually was a prostitute in the city of Jericho. King David committed adultery with Bathsheba. And actually, when we look at the names of the fathers in the genealogy as well, we see some pretty dark stuff going on. Abraham committed adultery with his slave. 
Isaac played favorites with his sons. Jacob lied and cheated. Judah slept with his dead son's widow. But in his defense, he didn't know who she was. He just thought she was a prostitute, as though that makes it better. David committed adultery with Bathsheba and then had her husband killed. Solomon had a thousand wives and concubines and deserted God at the end of his life. And the rest of the kings, some were good, but many of them committed really bad acts, really wicked things they did. Sacrificed their children uh, to false gods. Jesus' family tree is pretty messed up. You know, if if you are expecting your Christmas to be tough because of uh, having to see your family, you're in good company. The Bible is filled with broken and difficult families, Uh, and you should see an encouragement in there. God can still work good in, in very messed up, difficult situations. But there's another factor which all of these four women in this list have in common. They were Gentiles. They were non-Israelites. They weren't a part of the covenant family of God's people. That's probably why Bathsheba is called the wife of Uriah rather than her name Bathsheba, because her husband Uriah was a Hittite. He wasn't an Israelite. This is not the A-list. This is not the, the pedigree that you would expect in many cases. Several of them are reminders of the general and specific sins that have happened in the history of this family. And all of them are reminders, all of these women are reminders of those living outside of the people of God. So why drag up the past? Why mention these people? Why can't you just, you know, bury your family history and just forget about uh, those messy parts? Because it demonstrates that Jesus has come for all people. He hasn't come for those who have got it all together. He, He hasn't come for those who are a pedigree, pastor's kids, and holy people. He's come for sinners, even the worst of sinners. He's come for pagans. He's come for the ungodly. And finally, God's promise to Abraham is going to be fulfilled. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Jesus is the offspring that God was talking about, the true son of Abraham, through whom all nations will be blessed, the savior of all peoples. We even see this theme brought back right at the end of Matthew's gospel. In the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Jesus has come for the sake of everyone. No one is blocked from coming to him. What has your life been like so far? 
Has it been all that you had hoped it would be? Have you acted the way that you had hoped you would act each and every day? Do you have any regrets? Can you see any mistakes that you've made? When you're honest with yourself, can you see the sin that has been in your own life? Selfishness, dishonesty, lust, times where you have put yourself above anyone else. Times where you have put yourself above God in the, in, in the place that He rightly deserves in your life. Jesus came for you. This Christmas, will you prepare for Him? As Derwin said in the first message of this Advent series that we've been going through, the way that John the Baptist prepared for the coming of Jesus was to preach, repent, and believe. Turn from your sin. Turn to Jesus and believe in Him. That is the most important way that you can prepare this Christmas. Forget the meal. Forget the presents. Forget all the trimmings. Forget the traditions that you want. This is supremely more important than preparing your heart, than preparing yourself for the coming of Jesus. There's also a second plot twist in this passage. Uh, something else unexpected happens at the end of the genealogy. Look again at verse 16. Uh, again, it doesn't say what we expect it to say. The way that this whole list is being going, what we would expect it to say is, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, and Joseph, the father of Jesus. That would fit the pattern of all of the names beforehand. That's the natural conclusion to everything that has come before. But it doesn't say that. Instead, it says, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Rather than Joseph fathering Jesus, as we would expect from this pattern, it shifts and it explicitly says Jesus was born to Mary, not Joseph. It intentionally skips over the physical relationship of Joseph and Jesus. And as we read the rest of chapter 1 and, and 2, we see that this is no ordinary birth. This is a supernatural conception. Mary didn't become pregnant through the usual method. This is a, a supernatural conception, a miraculous conception, a result of the hand of God. And it fulfilled a prophecy spoken hundreds of years beforehand by Isaiah. Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call His name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Listing all of these fathers and sons in Matthew, and then intentionally not listing Jesus' father, is pointing to the fact that he had no ordinary human father. Instead, this is the very Son of God. 
God is now with us through the form of His eternal Son. This is no regular conception. This is no regular child. This is no regular birth. But there's another striking part to this. If Joseph is not Jesus' physical father, why spend 16 verses going through the list of Joseph's descendants? In the third century, there was a man called Arius who was born. I lived until the fourth century as well. And in trying to understand the relationship between God the Father and, and Jesus, the conclusion that he came to was that God had created Jesus at some point. And Jesus was not eternal like God the Father. And this belief became known as Arianism. It was a form of what's called adoptionism. The idea that at some point God adopted Jesus. Actually, a modern-day group that follows this heresy is the Jehovah's Witnesses. They believe that Jesus was created. Here's the thing that Arius got right. Jesus was adopted, but not in the way that he thinks. He got wrong who Jesus was adopted by. Jesus was not adopted by God. All the Scripture makes clear that the Son of God is eternal. Jesus was eternal. There's a passage that Bill quoted earlier. It said, through, uh, Jesus, through whom all things were created. The logic of that is all things that were created were created through Jesus. So how can he be something that was created? Did he create himself? Jesus always has been and always will be. He was, is, and is to come. But Jesus was adopted by Joseph. The fact that Joseph was not Jesus' biological father, and yet Jesus could still trace his lineage through Joseph's ancestors, demonstrates the legitimacy of adoption. And this is a foretaste of God's plan for humanity. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, God predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Jesus was adopted into a, a messy family. And because the Son of God was adopted into a human family, we can be adopted into God's family. Jesus has been united with humanity and all of its messy history. Maybe your family uh, looks like this genealogy. Maybe your own life looks like some of the people that we have looked at. Each of us has fallen short of the glory of God, have turned to our own way. Well, good news, Jesus knows that, and that's exactly why He came. On the very first page of the New Testament, the very first thing that we find is we read about who Jesus is and why He came. He, he came to save sinners. He came to save you and me. 
I don't know how you're feeling about the coming days, about Christmas coming up, uh, but I'm certain that there are some of you, many of you, who are stressed. Holidays are notoriously a stressful time. You're stressed financially because of the, the burden of providing presents. Maybe you're stressed and worried about seeing family because you know that whenever you get together with your family, you end up fighting. Maybe you are worried about loneliness because you've lost someone dear to you this past year and this is the first Christmas that you're going to have without them. Jesus came to bring peace. The reading that we, we had earlier Prince of Peace. That's what Isaiah calls Jesus. Prince of Peace. Jesus has come to bring peace into your life. That's what's available to you. My encouragement over the next few days is this. Cast yourself upon Jesus. Um, Relegate the peripheral things to where they should be. Yeah, like the, the food and the presents, they're fun, but they're not primary. They're not the most important things. Instead, remember Jesus. Cast yourself upon him. He cares for you. He is here. The King of kings has arrived, and he's waiting for you. He is the fulfillment of God's plan in history. His rule and reign will never end, and his kingdom has no boundaries. Let me pray. Come thou long-expected Jesus. Lord, we, we pray this in two ways. First of all, we thank you, Lord, that you have been working in human history, that you were, have always been at work in human history, and from the very beginning, you were preparing for the coming of your Son so that through him, all nations on earth may be blessed. That everyone who calls on his name, calls on you for forgiveness through his sacrifice, may be forgiven, may be um, in a right standing before you again. And so we thank you that you were preparing all throughout history for the coming of Jesus. And we also pray, Lord, come thou long-expected Jesus. We pray once again as the, the book of Revelation ends, come, Lord Jesus, come. We see the brokenness in this world. We see the tragedies that are happening. We see all the difficulties going on, and we ask for you to come and bring that to an end and establish the full extent of your rule and reign. Peace on earth. Peace for all eternity. We thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Isn't that good? Uh, in the 11th century, Bernard of Clairvaux uh, talked about the three comings of Christ. He came at Bethlehem, and he promises to come at the end of the age to make all things well. And he comes to every believer every day. <laughs> And uh, so let's, let's close by praying for the three comings of Christ. 
Thank you, Father, for loving us so much that you sent your Son to save us. Come, Lord Jesus. May Jesus be born again amongst us this Christmas, in our lives, in our families, as messed up as they are, in our church, in our city. Thank you, Jesus, that you came before and you're coming again in glory. Come, Lord Jesus. We long for you to return and make all things new. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for filling our lives. Come, Lord Jesus. May the Lord Jesus Christ be born in us today. Amen. God bless you. It's so good to worship with you and want to invite you again to come over the next couple of Sundays. Next Sunday, I'll wander around with a microphone and invite you if you have a, a brief testimony of God's faithfulness this last year. Uh, no one will be forced to share, and so just come and, and you can uh, give a word of God's goodness in your life. That's next Sunday at 10 a.m., uh, t- uh, Tuesday nights at 4 o'clock and 5.30, we'll be celebrating Christ's birth uh, on Christmas Eve. It's going to be special, so we'll look forward to seeing you there. If you'd like prayer this morning, please feel free to come and receive prayer. And we have refreshments at the back. God bless you as you go. By the way, take a, take a look around and see the art of our children. Isn't that amazing? They've done this specifically for Christmas this year for us and uh, done by our kids. So let's, can we give them a hand? All right. God bless you.